A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimbare Brüder in America. So tausend Schafes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode is in our ongoing series of great American Jewish cities. This time we're up to the five towns on Long Island. And um, this has been this episode has been generously sponsored in memory of Rabbi and Rebetzin Binyamin Kamenetsky, who are from the founders of the Orthodox community of the five towns. And in that context, I want to mention that the current uh, head of the South Shore Yeshiva is also a friend and a scholar in his own right, and also a dedicated listener of Jewish History Soundbites, Rabbi Mordechai Kamenetsky. I want to thank him for taking the time to provide a large amount, a huge amount, really, of information that he himself has researched, written, and published in many forums, and has graciously uh, shared it uh, with me for use on this episode. So the five towns, um, we start to speak about the Jewish history of the community of um, Lawrence, Cedarhurst, Woodmere, Hewlett, and Inwood. Um, so first of all, I have you know many personal family connections there. I almost uh, I didn't grow up there, but I almost kind of grew up there. I had so many uh, relatives who were there that I was there quite often. My grandparents and uh, many other uh, relatives. My father grew up in Hewlett and went to Hewlett High School um, where Donna Karen of DKNY was in his class in, in Hewlett High. She grew up in Woodmere. She was you know, another Jew from the Jewish community in uh, of the five towns. And so my father told me that the, that the Hewlett High School was, was mostly Jewish, you know, up, up to 90% Jewish uh, student body. But of course, zero Orthodox. This is in the 1950s, early 60s. Um, and that, so it was a very much a Jewish community, but a different type of Jewish community. And um, the Five Towns Jewish community developed even a, a bit pre war, uh, very little in the pre war era. It's a Jewish community that developed kind of late. It's a product primarily of the post war. It was more in Farakaway pre-war, even there it was small, but we covered that in the Farakaway episode. But there is, once I mentioned Farakaway, there is a strong connection between the two. Um, the five towns being on the border of Nassau County, the border of New York City and Nassau County. So there was 
you know, the connection between Farakaway and that edge of Queens to the five towns and to the development of the Jewish community there in the early years, people would have to trek across to Farakaway for for a Jewish school, for a Jewish shul, for a Jewish for a mikvah, for you know those things, and the the spillover eventually um, reached Lawrence and developed the five towns. So it is somewhat of a product of the Jewish community of Farakaway that shifted over, but also in general of New York City. The post-war moved to the suburbs, to Long Island, along with northern New Jersey and Westchester. So the, the in general, the move to the suburbs in the post-war, in the 1950s, a lot of the war veterans came back and they were entitled to all kinds of housing grants and and uh, and uh, you know they, they you know Manhattan and then New York City got got crowded. For instance, my you know I said my father grew up in Yale. The way my grandparents reached there was he was in the military. He was a dentist in the military during World War II, and um, when he was discharged from the service, and he was able to get a housing grant in Stuyvesant Town in Manhattan. And then it just got too crowded and inconvenient to live in Manhattan, so they moved out to Long Island in the nineteen. 19- um, 1940s already, right after the war, a couple of years after the war, and they moved to uh, Hewlett, and there he opened a dental practice in Woodmere for a half a century. He was had a dental practice in Woodmere, and uh, that's where I used to go to the dentist growing up, and then, of course, he got lunch in, in Hewlett by my grandparents. It's not to be confused with another famous Jewish dentist from Woodmere, Howard. Howard was a dentist in Woodmere, but he's a different dentist. Now they call him Chaimo, and on Shabbos he wears a strimo. That's a whole different story. Um, so so I grew up eating on Central Avenue and Cedarhurst, which is one of the most important parts of the Jewish community in the five towns, is the food on Central Avenue. You know, Chosen Island, which apparently is still around, and we used to go to Zamek's Bakery, and a million other eateries uh, that from then and from now and from in between. Uh, and several other prominent uh, family members who are from the architects of of the Jewish community in the five towns, the Maidenbaum family. Um, my, my uncle, Nat Maidenbaum, was one of the builders. He was one of the earliest Orthodox uh, Jewish families. His father, Gedalia Maidenbaum, and then, his, his, and then Nat and Esther Maidenbaum, they, um, they were from the builders of the early shuls and came there in the early 1950s already. They were out in Lawrence, and I had another great aunt and uncle in 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 Lawrence, who were the, one of the early members of Beth Shalom. Um, so uh, so they were so the the maiden members were architects of uh, Jewish life there, and they continue their their children today. And Shalom and Iris Maidenbaum in the five towns till today, and um, and other and other ones involved in David Schreiber is one of the ones involved in building the first mikvah in the five towns. And David and Dasi Schreiber are still prominent members of the Five Towns Jewish community. So, in all all sides, in all the early building and the history of the Five Towns, so they I got to hear much of it firsthand, um, which was very exciting to be able to um, to be able to have that uh, participation. And then, uh, and, and so the the um, the development of the Jewish, the Five Towns Jewish community and the Orthodox Jewish community, there's specific institutions along with the personalities associated with them and, uh, and other personalities and, uh, that we'll try to cover as much as we can. I believe, like it's been in the past few cities, that we'll have to go to two parts. Um, lately, we've been getting more and more information as we're going deeper into this, uh, 
into this series on Jewish cities, so I assume that uh, we'll check the time as we go along, but I assume that we'll have to split this into two parts. And of course, if we do so, then part two is available for sponsorship, so please be in touch with me as far as sponsorship for part two of the Five Towns episode, as well as sponsorship for any other episodes and the like. Um, So we have in the... um, of course, I also get to see the contemporary uh, also in the Five Towns, um, the, the legendary Lawrence uh, residents, the Aber family, Nachum Aber and his son Yaakov Aber, who's a dear friend. So I was hosted by them and several visits to the Five Towns. So we get to see contemporary Jewish life, one of the few places um, in America that I'm actually familiar with in the contemporary sense, not only by researching the history and uh, my also dear friend and fellow researcher and mishpacha columnist, Davi Safir, um, also in Lawrence today. So between those two people, I get to have a very good feel of contemporary Jewish life in the uh, five towns as well. So really going through history up down to the present time with this one. In the pre-war era, it was a very waspy, um, non-Jewish, very suburban uh, um, atmosphere, uh, the some of the some you know historic American um, institutions were there: the Inwood Country Club, which I'll get to, and the Rockaway Country Club, which I'll get to. So you know, the, you talk about the five towns. We usually try to mention connections to sports in these cities episodes. So the five towns, of course, the sports aren't baseball. That's too. That's for the uh, the masses. Here we're talking about golf. Polo, horse racing, the, the sports in the five towns are obviously uh, tennis on a different level. Um, in 1923, there was an incident with the Ku Klux Klan in Cedarhurst. It was a Thanksgiving Day ceremony with veterans, war, war veterans, a couple of years after World War I. And there was a rabbi from Farakaway, uh, from Temple Israel in Farakaway, Rabbi Isaac Landman, who was uh, participating in the ceremony. And the Ku Klux Klan wanted to lay a wreath of flowers by the base of this uh, monument. And it was a whole outbreak and people tried to remove it and it became a whole brawl and a fight. And, uh, and this, uh, this, uh, this rabbi tried to, uh, you know, in his speech, tried to, you know, explain what the, uh, the democratic principles of the United States. So, you know, a person's background and their origins shouldn't make a difference and everyone has their they should have their freedom and freedom of expression in uh, in America. So again, that's the, the early years are expressing that um, that that distance essentially of the Jewish community from that area. Though interestingly enough, there's a German Jew named Maximilian Morgenthau, who's the uncle of the treasury treasury the famous Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau Jr. Um, and during the Roosevelt administration, became famous because of his attempts at rescue activities of Jews during the uh, war years. And so this his uncle, Maximilian Morgenthau, with a group of German-Jewish real estate investors were the early developers of Woodmere. This is at a time when it was a very waspy area, and the Rockaway Country Club was no Jews allowed. And, and here they're the ones who developed the area and built up the real estate and hire architects to, to put up all these, you know, the original homes. And um, so, so that's that's the situation of the pre-war. Like I said, it was the home 
Inwood, the famous Inwood Country Club, which was the site of the 1921 PGA uh, Golf uh, Championship, and two years later, 1923, the U.S. Open, which Bobby Jones, who was a famous golfer and one of the founders of the other famous Augusta National uh, Golf Club down in Savannah, so so Bobby Jones won an impressive uh, title um, in the U.S. Open at the time. Cedarhurst, so its early name was Ocean Point, and rail service arrived in 1869, which led people to the area, and the development of rail connecting it to New York City really developed the five towns, first as a vacation resort and later as all, all year rounds, and especially which um, to the Rockaway Hunting Club, which was built in Cedarhurst in 1878. Um, so then eventually it's renamed uh, from Ocean Point to Cedarhurst, and this Rockaway Hunting Club, which is the oldest country club in the United States, um, it wasn't a country club originally. Uh, it was a it was originally for fox hunting and horse racing, um, and uh, and very waspy, very American elite, old school money. And they built the the members built the largest and most luxurious clubhouse on Long Island. And it overlooked the Reynolds Channel and Long Beach. It had a polo field and a horse racing course. And they did not allow entry to Jews. There was a no no Jews policy, and that was that was accepted for many many years, decades. And my father remembers it still when he grew up there. Um, there was signs in, in in some of the neighborhoods in that area at that time. Again, you're talking about in the early 1900s, no blacks or Jews. Um, that was at a time when. When uh, when it, there was this uh, discrimination, of course, um, you know, strong American nationalist, where the minorities, like blacks or Jews, understood that they needed to fight for liberalism to get basic uh, equal rights, which is also a piece of American Jewish history, which uh, may have been forgotten. Now, for many years, the Central Avenue, the area's main business district, was considered the it was like the Rodeo Drive of of uh, Long Island, like in LA, there was upscale shops and and uh, and uh, all kinds of fancy stores. You know, as the Orthodox uh, Jewish community grows, so the stores and the restaurants cater to the needs of the community. So the demographic changed. You know, they so the streets businesses are closed on Shabbos, and and uh, and the whole the whole neighborhood changes. So when we go back to the turn of the twentieth century, there was a trolley that went from Jamaica and Queens to Rockaway Turnpike and then went down Lawrence Avenue through Inwood and uh, and then turned to, towards Farakaway, and that was a 10-cent trolley that connected Queens to the five towns. So there's this there's this dynamic change and development that the change in the neighborhood, the demographics, and eventually the religious orientation changes, and there's this uh, socioeconomic mobility. It was always an upscale neighborhood. So the pre-war we're talking about where it's non-Jewish wasps. In the post-war we're talking about the second and third generation secular or conservative uh, Jews. And later on the Orthodox Jewish community uh, develops. It's an evolving uh, place. And um, until the late 1950s, the early 1960s, there was literally no Orthodox Jewish uh, neighborhood to speak of. So it's a very relatively 
new, um, uh, not historic uh, Jew- uh, Orthodox Jewish community. Well, I just focus a couple uh, on a couple of the fa- uh, Orthodox institutions that were built over the years and the personalities that were associated with them, so we get a feel through that. It's a kind of a prism to understanding the development of the community. The first, first, excuse me, the first Orthodox uh, shul was uh, Beth Shalom. It was founded in 1928. And uh, it wasn't called Beth Shalom then. The name came later. There's barely any Jews in the area, let alone Orthodox Jews, like I said. There's actually almost no people altogether. There's a lot of empty land. And one of the early rabbis was a fellow by the name of Robert Marcus, who was actually the first Jewish chaplain in the U.S. Navy. And he was involved with the liberation in the, of the concentration camps and the assisting of the survivors during the war. Now, I've actually been to Beth Shalom many times, as several of my family members are members of the shul, the beautiful edifice that, that, uh, that was built many, many years ago, in the early years of the shul. And the primary influence, the one who had the impact uh, the most on the shul, was the legendary rabbi for close to 40 years, Rabbi Gilbert Klaperman. Um, and he was born in Harlem, and he went to Yeshiva Rabbi Yisrael Salanter in Harlem, which is also an, an interesting story. The Yeshiva in Harlem, and it's named after Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, and eventually he's a Talmud of Rabbi Yisrael Soloveitchik and, and, and the Rav in, in YU, and Rabbi Belkin, who's close with all three of them. And then YU sends him, after they give him smicha, they send him to different positions to be a rabbi. First they send him to Canada, where he ends up uh, being a chaplain in the Canadian army, um, and then he was later in Charleston, there's a couple other places, and then in 1950, he goes out to Long Island, and he becomes the rabbi of Beth Shalom. He wanted to very much influence Jewish life there, so he founds a day school, the Hillel School, which until then the only um, day school in, in the area was in Farakaway, Highlight. There was no day school in the five towns. So here's, here, um, here uh, he founds the Hillel School. We'll get to other day schools that were found in the the, um, the Yeshiva of South Shore, which is a whole story also, but here we have the Hill School that originally had its classes in the shul. They didn't have a building. They had it in Beth Shalom itself. Rabbi Klepermoon was active on behalf of Soviet jury, even traveled to the Soviet Union, and he once even met and spoke to Khrushchev, which was uh, quite an impressive meeting. He met the Pope, and uh, at one point also, he built the first Eruv in Lawrence, again, uh, to create an, a, a growing Jewish community. He creates the Vad HaKashris of Lawrence, which still exists today. He just p- passed away two years ago at the age of 96. He was a, quite a scholar and lecturer and writer as well. One of the early uh, notable members of the shul, Beth Shalom, was Herbert Tenzer. Now, he was the uh, first Orthodox congressman in the House of Representatives. He even once held the Rosh Hashanah services on Capitol Hill because John McCormick, the legendary Speaker of the House from Boston, one of the longest, uh, as far as I know, one of the longest, about a decade, 1960s and early 70s, he was the Speaker of the House. He was a, quite a colorful character also. There's interesting stories about him. So either way, John McCormick, um, um, it was when Boston was at its heyday. McCormick was the Speaker of the House and Kennedy was the President of the United States. So McCormick needed Tenzer's vote. So he had to be there for Rosh Hashanah. So Tenzer was actually a lawyer. He was a philanthropist also, and he's one of the heads of the Vadat Salah during the war, um, especially after the war. He headed the, the division of the Vadat Salah, which was to locate Jewish children who had been hidden with Christian families and monasteries and to help them rejoin the Jewish community. It was a whole story that Tenzer was involved with in the Vadat Salah, which is an important story. Perhaps we'll get to it another time when we cover that aspect of, of post-Holocaust rescue. And either way, 
Hertenzer served in the U.S. Congress for four years in the late 1960s. He was also partners with Stephen Klein and Barton's Chocolates. And, the, and he was very much affiliated with YU. He, he was the founder of the of the all, basically all the graduate schools in YU, the Einstein School of Medicine and the Cardoza School of Law and the Business School. And he was on the Board of Trustees and he served as the chairman of, of YU. And later when, when Rabbi Klaperman retired, so Rabbi Kenneth Hain became the rabbi of, of uh, Beth Shalom and further developed the, the shul. Another um, shul in, in, uh, in, in the five towns, interesting situation also, is the Sons of Israel. It was an Orthodox shul, and then, like most Orthodox shuls across across America, across the United States, in the 1950s, they removed the mechitza. That was the era of removing the mechitzas, and every shul, and they switched. Almost every shul switched to conservative Orthodox. It was called the death of Orthodoxy outside of New York City. But here, the Sons of Israel, they never officially became conservative. They never officially joined the conservative movement, and it was written into their charter that they have to use a traditional sitter. So till today, they use an orthodox sitter, like Art Scroll or something of the like. So it's a, a truly a unique situation where you have a no mechitza, but they use an orthodox sitter, and not officially part of the conservative, conservative Judaism. Another early shul was the Young Israel of Woodmere. Young Israel of Woodmere was started by Rabbi Yamin Kamenetsky, who's more famously associated with uh, the Yeshiva of South Shore, which I'll get to. Ryom Kamenetsky was the oldest son of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, which I'll talk about him in a couple of minutes when we get to the Yeshiva of South Shore. But eventually he cedes his position. It was too much for him to carry both positions. So he cedes his position to Rabbi Shaya Libor, which I'll also get to in a minute, a fascinating uh, uh, individual who was the rabbi there for two decades. And then later on, by from the 1980s, Rabbi Heshi Billet, who's still the rabbi there. You know, the, it's the largest Orthodox shul in the United States, aside from the big Hasidic ones like Satmar, uh, but like a congregational shul, it's, the, it's pretty much the largest shul in the United States, a huge, which is already subdivided into several smaller shuls, or Rabbi Shai Shechter, a young and rising superstar in the American rabbinate, is one of the rabbis in, in the young Israel of Woodmere today. But uh, Rabbi Billet, I once uh, had the privilege of spending a plane ride with. I was on a flight, and I look at next to me, and I recognize the face, and I say, Rabbi Billet, I presume. And he's, you know, so we got into a whole schmooze, and we spent the entire flight. And he's a great schmoozer. And we talked from beginning to end of the flight. It was great. We covered a lot of topics. I remember one thing Rabbi Billet told me is that... Um, is that he said that uh, he's a Galicianer, Belzer Hasidic, from a family of Belzer Hasidim, and he says to me, I look like that, don't I? And, uh, and, uh, and he said, but Rav Soloveitchik turned me into a Kalta Litvak. So there, there, there goes his Belzer Hasidim, now he has to be a Kalta Litvak. Um, today Rabbi Axelrod is also the rabbi in, in, uh, in uh, Young Israel Woodmere. So Rabbi Shia Libor, who was one of the earliest uh, rabbis, he came from a Lithuanian wealthy immigrant family in London. He went to public school because there were no Jewish schools in London at the time, but he had private tutors. Among One of his private tutors was Rabbi Eli Lapian, who his father hired to learn with him. And from London, he goes to study in the Mir in Poland in 1936 at the age of 18. And Rabbi Lezi Yudel Finkel eventually gave him smicha. And when the war breaks out, 
He he escapes. He goes to the United States where he studies in Tervidas and NYU and he got a degree from Columbia. And he served as a chaplain also in the U.S. Army and he was after World War II, not during the war. And he was in the Bergen-Belsen DP camp helping survivors in the post-war. In 1960, he becomes the rabbi in the young Israel of Wadmer. He was involved with David Schreiber in building the first mikveh in the five towns. He was also involved in the Vada Kashrus. And uh, when he retired, he was very modest and very simple, uh, no airs about him. So when he retired, he came still daven that the young Israel would mirror, and he would sit in the back like a commoner. He said, I'm not the rabbi anymore. Rabbi Billet is the rabbi. And Rabbi Billet refused to allow this, and he would not allow the davening to start. He insisted that Rabbi Libor come up to the front and sit up next to him. Otherwise, he can he can he doesn't feel comfortable, the, the rabbi, for so many years sitting in the back. A few years later, 1980s, Rabbi Libor is retired now. He moves to Israel. What does he do? He said, I'm a mirror Talmud. I studied in the Mary Shiva in Poland. I had to escape because of the war. And then I was a congregational rabbi for decades. So now I'm retired. I went back to the mirror. And he sat down to learn in the Mary Shiva in Yerushalayim. Enjoyed a very warm relationship with the Rebunasasvi Finkel, the, the previous Rashiva of the mirror. And there's a, another shul that developed in, uh, in, uh, in the five towns, the young Israel of Lawrence Cedarhurst. And uh, one of the famous rabbis there was it. Uh, a very interesting individual named Nachum Tzvi Kornmel. And he was from Vienna, also escapes because of the rise of Nazism. And he um, was a rabbi in Albany. Later he becomes a rabbi in Young Israel of Lawrence Cedarhurst. He was a Kashrus pioneer. So he was the brother-in-law of Stephen Klein of Barton's Chocolates. And he was very involved in Kashrus and consulted with many of the other leading uh, Kashrus rabbinical personalities in the United States at the time. And he was the first one to come up with the the uh, formula for kosher gelatin. It was needed in a lot of the products in Barton's, where he was in charge of the kashras in the company. And he came up with kosher gelatin, which was an important advance in science and in kashras, and uh, it's to his credit. He was a very active community leader, very much invested in the youth of the community, of his shul, very much devoted to them and to their interests and to their needs. And he was incredibly dedicated to the members when he fell ill and he had to be hospitalized. He insisted on not choosing a hospital that had the best medical care, but he wanted to be in a hospital that was local, that was nearby. Because what if a congregant needs me while I'm sick in the hospital? I don't want him to have to schlep and travel far to consult with me. An incredible dedication to his, uh, to his uh, congregants. And he, once he retired, he was succeeded by Rabbi Moshe Teitelbaum, a prominent rabbi also in the, uh, the five towns. And one of the, uh, the founding members of, uh, of the Young Israel of Lawrence Cedars was a very interesting individual named Manfred Lehman. Dr. Manfred Lehman, who aside from all his activism and community involvement and building and supporting Jewish life from other philanthropists in the five towns, in Young Israel and many other of the institutions and the Torah institutions of the five towns, he also was a, was a tremendous scholar. He taught himself at a young age Egyptian hieroglyphics, you know how to read that. He was involved. He was, studied archaeology. He had a. His wrote his doctorate on the, believe it or not, on the property transfer law of the Chitim, the ancient Can, Canaanite tribe who sold Avram Avinu the Marasimach Pela. So the property transfer law. In other words, the doctorate was to explain how they sold the Marasimach Pela to Avram Avinu and how that property transfer went. Uh, uh, 
and a very scholarly individual wrote a, a quite a bit. He was a world traveler. He was involved with the Cairo Geniza and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he did uh, lots of business with African nations. He built the telecommunications empire there, and uh, he was born in Sweden. He came to America in, the 19, in 1940. He was a big Zionist. It seems like he was a absolutely fascinating personality. Now, all these shuls are nice, but if we don't invest in Jewish education, then it doesn't have a Jewish future. So we have the Hillel School, which I mentioned, and Rabbi Klaperman, and Valbeth Shalom, but then you have the Yeshiva of South Shore, Rabbi Yomin Kamenetsky. Rabbi Yomin Kamenetsky, um, he found the Yeshiva of South Shore, which eventually expanded, the Yeshiva, and a Koyal, and a high school, and he started the girls' school, which eventually moved to Farakoy, which is tag. And he started with a Torah Masora affiliation with Dr. Joe Kamenetsky, the head of Torah Masora, with no, no uh, family relation there. But it was the first real Orthodox, especially non coed, a separate school in, in, in the five towns in 1956. In 2006, interestingly enough, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the uh, school, uh, the South Shore Yeshiva, Sir Rabbi Kamenetsky founded the Five Towns Jewish Heritage Society to record the history of the Jewish community, which his son Rabbi Mordechai continues with his writings, but uh, a strong history interest on the part of Rabbi Yamin, which is important. And in fact, he grew up in Tetevian, where his father, the Rabbi Kamenetsky, was the rabbi, so he grew up. English was not his first language, and he became a very prominent and active rabbi in the Five Towns. He had to know English, so in fact, when he was in his early years in the United States, the one who taught him English, tutored him in English, was a much younger uh, um, boy who eventually became a rabbi and eventually left the rabbinate and observed in Judaism and became a comedian, and that is Jackie Mason. So Jackie Mason taught Rabbi Yarmin Kamenetsky English. Um, you know, go figure which words he taught him, which ones he didn't, but it, they, maybe the style, I don't know. I never heard Rabbi Yamin Kamenetsky speak, but uh, he taught him English. Either way, so he was the oldest son of Rabbi Yaakov, and he was sent as a young boy from Stevian to learn in Shavel in Lithuania, and then later in a younger, younger uh, yeshiva for younger boys in Kelm, and then later in Tells. He learned in Tells, and, and when they moved to America, he uh, studied in the newly opened Chavetz Chaim yeshiva of Rabbi David Leibowitz, his father was close friends with from Slobotka, and then later on in Ner Yisrael of Baltimore by Bruderman, who also was a relative and close to his father from Slobotka. But then eventually he goes to Hasidish Hashirach. He marries Cyril, the daughter of Rav Pinchas Spiegel, who was the Ostrov Kalashina Rebbe. And he becomes a second grade Rebbe in East New York. And one day, as a Rebbe in the second grade of East New York in Brooklyn, there's a boy who raises his, he, he, he's taking attendance, and he Asked the boy, it says, it says where the boy is from. It's the beginning of the year. And it says that the boy is from Cedarhurst. So he asked the boy, where's the Cedarhurst? Do you mean Canarsie? Where there was a big Jewish community at the time. So the guy says, no. The boy says, no, I come from Cedarhurst. It's out on Long Island. So Rabbi Yonkanesky had never heard of Long Island, a place so far away. So he says to him, why don't you go to Cheder in Long Island? So he says, there is no Cheder in Long Island. My parents wanted me to study in a, in a yeshiva, in a Jewish school, so they had to send me to Brooklyn. So eventually what he does is he actually moves to Woodmere, and he started what would become the Young Israel of Woodmere, which I mentioned, and then he starts with Joe Kamenetsky from Tarimusara, the day school, and uh, and it was the first all-boys school in the area. And Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's father told Rabbi Yaman to go to Long Island because Tyra was given in a desert, and you should go try, endeavor to build Tyra in a desert where there is none. 
So he was heavily and actively, actively involved in all the major Rabbi Yaakov, his father, because he sent his son out there. He was involved in ma- all the major educational decisions of the yeshiva. He participated in all the meetings. He would come visit out in, in, in the yeshiva very often. He once came in 1970. He was during the whole hijacking story, and Rav Hutner was was hijacked, and all the other Jews in the in the out in Jordan they were the terrorists and had taken them. And Rabbi Yaakov was very involved in that. So he shows up to this Yeshiva of South Shore meeting exhausted because he was involved to taking care of things most of the night. So he said, I still came because this is important to me. And he insisted on not missing a meeting. Um, he had it as utmost importance to be involved in the Yeshiva. And Rabbi Yaakov would visit the Yeshiva open, often. And, um, and the Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky eventually opened the kindergarten. And Stephen Klein uh, as a philanthropist, offered an incentive to open a you know, Orthodox kindergarten, so Rabbi Yamin Kamenetsky did. And, uh, and when in the kindergarten, Rabbi Yaakov, who inspected the kindergarten, when he visited, he noticed that they had the mezuzah very low on the doorposts. So Rabbi Yaakov said, why is the mezuzah low? It's lower than it's supposed to be. They said, we want the kids to be able to touch the mezuzah. So Rabbi Yaakov said, don't lower the mezuzah, Raise the children. Have a chair next to the next to the door and raise the children up to do the mitzvah uh, properly, which I felt wasn't just in the literal sense; was also in the symbolic sense. Um, he uh, he also insisted, or Yaakov insisted, that there shouldn't be Yiddish spoken in the yeshiva. Catering to American kids, it should be only English, which, believe it or not, was a novelty at the time, and uh, and uh, today is you know pretty much standard. Um, he encouraged the building of the Masifta and the post-high school-based medrash. He would even attend the graduations. That's how involved he was. So one of the spin-offs of the institutions of the Yeshiva South Shore was the, the Yeshiva Gedayla of the five towns, um, which the Rosh Yeshiva, there's a cousin of my wife, uh, Ramesha Katzenstein, so that became a prominent uh, Yeshiva as well. Um, there's plenty more to speak about the South Shore Yeshiva. Not going to get involved in too much in depth because I want to move on to other anecdotes and institutions and personalities of the five towns. Um, so you have in Northwood Mirror, which is kind of like the five towns, a little bit further out, you had the, they deserve an episode on their own. So I'm just going to mention them in passing, Rabbi Meshulam and Rabbi Esther Jungreis, uh, Northwood Mirror. So they, they're, they're Holocaust survivors from Hungary, having gone through whatever they went through. And they come to the United States, he becomes a rabbi, and, and he, they become Kirov pioneers before the, coin, the, before the term had been coined, and uh, before it was in style. And they, uh, in the early 1960s, they initiate a, 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 uh, a laning the Megillah on Purim, on the LIR, on the Long Island Railroad, where Rebetzin Yungregs gives out hum, homemade humantashin and and this is before there's the famous Dafyaymi shear on the LIR. So that already, it's another part of history of the five towns, the Dafyaymi shear, that they have their own car, uh, uh, their own, their own, you know, train car, and the, going into the city every morning, studying the Dafyaymi from going from the five towns in Long Island and the, in, and, and using the train ride to study Dafyaymi. So before that even, you have the young guys is doing the Megillah laning on the Purim there. And um, in 1964, he opens the Ar Taira Shul in North Woodmere. And later on, a decade later, they have the Hineni, which is the Kirov organization, and very prominent individuals that perhaps we'll get to uh, another time. There's another conservative uh, temple in, in uh, North Woodmere, um, the Temple Hillel. 
and had historic distinction. That was the first shul, first uh, Jewish synagogue that a president of the United States went to visit and speak at since George Washington did in Newport, Rhode Island in the tourist synagogue. So Ronald Reagan in 1984 came to speak at the shul. And the rabbi of the shul was a fascinating individual named Rabbi Morris Friedman, who his son, David Friedman, is the ambassador to the state of Israel. So Rabbi Morris Friedman was... Um, was unique in the fact that he encouraged the congregants to a conservative, to a conservative temple to be to a more observant uh, Jewish lifestyle and to send their kids to Orthodox Jewish day schools to the South Shore to send them to the Yeshiva South Shore. He was very close to Rabbi Kamenetsky, and uh, during his time, his prime, the Temple Hill had more than a thousand members. So, um, so the another. Educational inst- uh, yeshiva institution, like I said, was Hillel, which eventually in the 1970s merged with Hylai and became the Hafter uh, Yeshiva, where Mayor Scheimer was a nephew of Reb Chaim Scheimer. After the merger, he was the principal of the yeshiva. He just passed away recently during the coronavirus. And, uh, and other yeshivas opened up, DRS and Helb, and you can really go on and on and on. I'll, I'll hopefully get, get to it more in, in part two. One of the more interesting uh, shuls that opened in the five towns in 1969 was the Shtibel. The Shtibel of the five towns of David Spiegel, who was the Ostrov Kalashina Rebbe of Cedarhurst. And he was the brother-in-law of Rabbi Kamenetsky, who had married his sister, and he helped them establish the first Chassidish Shtibel there. And this Rabbi David Spiegel was born in the, in the Bronx. He went to RJJ in the Philly, Philadelphia Yeshiva, and he went to Lakewood, and he and he uh, he's actually the chazan Yom Nuraim for many years in the Philly yeshiva, but then he establishes a this Hasidic shtibel. It was the first spudik in the five towns, the first time that a rabbi got up and spoke with lots of Yiddish expressions in his speeches and divrei Torah. He was made references to the Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Cutler. These were all novelties in the five towns, but perhaps the biggest novelty of his was that. He would refer to God as the Rabbeinu Shalaylam. Most rabbis in the five towns referred to him as God or the Almighty. So the joke in the five towns, which I don't know how serious it was, was that with Rabbi Spiegel's move to the five towns, the Rabbeinu Shalaylam moved to the five towns also. But the truth is, is that most people who came to his shtibel came for his wife's cholent because it was the first Haimish shtibel that had a weekly kiddush. He also started the first dafyaimish here in the young Israel of Woodmere. Later on, Rabbi Gruber was a Hasidic rabbi in the five towns. And this, if we're talking about the growth of, uh, of, of Hasidus in the five towns, so we have to mention that later on, Rabbi Meisha Weinberger, Eish Kaidish, builds up in, in Woodmere, and that's the spearheads the third neo-Hasidic revolution, which is fundamentally different than the first two uh, neo-Hasidic revolutions in the history of, of the Hasidic movement. The first one, was in the pre-war era in Poland and in Germany by Martin Buber and Hill Zeitlin and other people like that. And the second one, which we really have to devote another episode to the history of neo-Hasidism. It's a very interesting and very relevant and timely topic, I believe, so hopefully we'll get to that. But the second neo-Hasidic revolution was in the post-war in the 1960s, in the counterculture movement, Shlomo Karlbach and Zalman Shachter Shalomi and Arthur Green, and etc. So the third neo-Hasidic revolution is very, very different from the first two, and that's uh, the titular uh, head of that movement was uh, is Ramesh Weinberger and its home base is in Woodmere, the Eishkaida Shul. So we have to get a little bit to food of the five towns um, because that's an important component of the Jewish community. And you have the uh, 
Vada Kashras, uh, which was started, I, like I mentioned earlier, and Sabra's Pizza was the first kosher establishment. Um, and it was originally called Zuzu in Farakway, so I'm really happy they changed the name. Um, but they, they had, in more recent history, a very fascinating story of the kosher Dunkin' Donuts in the Five Towns. It had a scion of the Chernobyl Hasidic dynasty, a fellow by the name of Reb Shloyma Tversky, whose father was the last Chernobyl Rebbe in Borough Park, and Reb Shloyma Tversky did not take over his father as the Chernobyl Rebbe, but in his later years he moved from Flatbush to the Five Towns, a bunch of his children lived there, and he's passing by the Dunkin' Donuts one day, and he says, why don't we make this kosher? And he eventually made it kosher, on his own initiative, and he convinced the owners, he came in as a partner, he left, because he was uncomfortable with the fact that it was open on Shabbos, even though he was able to halachically get around it, but he didn't want to, to go that way. But he stayed very close with the non-Jewish owners. In fact, he just passed away two or three years ago, and the non-Jewish owners of the kosher Dunkin' Donuts, they came to be Menachem Avel, his children, and they were crying. They said, your father was an angel, and we used to consult him and ask him advice, and, and, and we didn't make a move without him. It's an amazingly warm personality. So that's the influence that he had on the non-Jews, and of course, now we have the kosher Dunkin' Donuts as a result. But the King David uh, was an early kosher restaurant, the Chosen Island, which is still around. And then the kosher soap supermarkets, which became legendary, like Gourmet Glot. And, uh, and the variety, fame and the variety of eateries on Central Avenue in that area of Cedarhurst and the Five Towns probably surpasses all the other institutions of importance in the, uh, in the Five Towns. There is a, um, some personalities uh, of the of the Jewish Jews in the Five Towns was Morris Morgenstern, who was a philanthropist. He was one of the builders of Mir Brooklyn and many other Jewish causes. There was a Rabbi Yaakov Koslovsky, who was a Talmud of Chaim Brisker and involved with the uh, Slabotka office uh, of uh, of uh, of New York uh, at the time. He ran the Slabotka office, and then there was a fellow by the name of William. Holtzman, who was known as Red Holtzman, who was the Jewish coach of the New York Knicks, when Willis Reed during the heyday of the New York Knicks, and uh, and he was born in Brooklyn to immigrant Jewish parents, but he lived in Woodmere for many years. He served in the Navy during the war, and he's considered one of the greatest coaches in NBA history. And he won 613 games, right? The Jewish coach in New York wins 613 games of his career. And when they retired his when they retired his as his jersey, as it were, so they have the number 613 on it in Madison Square Garden and hanging from the rafters. And I remember the one and only CMHS that I ever attended in the garden to the backdrop to the podium where all the big rabbis were making the CM on the podium was this Jewish name, Holtzman, and the number 613. So I was thinking then as a child, wow, the Agudas Yisrael in America, they know how to arrange everything. They even make sure that the Knicks uh, jerseys hanging above the rafters have a Jewish name and 613 on it. Um, so we have um, other uh, personalities who lived in the five towns, whereas Velvo Pasternak, who was the greatest writer of Jewish sheet music in history, Hasidic music, every genre, genre of uh, Jewish music. He was involved very much in the young Israel of Woodmere and the Shtibel in its early years, and he actually just passed away last year, recently. Um, there's lot, lots more, and uh, we'll have to get to the rest of it in part two. So be in touch with me about a sponsorship. And um, this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. Questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, virtual tours, lectures, 
Zoom lectures, sponsorships, and subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.